Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind their success. Today we meet Joanne McNamara, Head of Europe at Oxford Properties. Her Irish husband, Gary McNamara, tells me that Joe is infamous in their family as the sole wearer of Wales's red rugby jersey. He and I would disagree on her choice of rugby team, but it does make sense given Joe studied mathematics at Cardiff before completing a master's in international real estate at Oxford Books University. Having qualified as a chartered surveyor with DTZ, Joe demonstrated her ability to embrace risk early on in her career, choosing to move jobs in the middle of the global financial crisis, joining Hammerson's investment team in 2008. In 2010, Joe was then hired as the original member of Oxford Properties UK investment team and since has supported the growth of Oxford's European real estate business to more than $10 billion assets under management and over 40 employees. In 2021, Joe played a crucial role in securing the business's acquisition of M7 real estate with the aim of investing a further £3 billion into European logistics. Joe was christened by one of our speakers as a velvet hammer. <laughs> and indeed, we were lucky enough to hear stories of both her immense capacity for kindness, respect and putting people first in business, but also her staunch inability to suffer fools easily, particularly when putting together a sports team. Her achievements include PERE, European Industry Figure of the Year, and she received recognition as a PERE Woman of Influence. So it'll come as no surprise to our listeners that Joe was also captain of the netball team. Well, Joe, if this podcast was a netball game, I most definitely have held the ball for more than three seconds. <laughs> so without further ado, I'll throw the centre pass to you. Joe McNamara, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Brilliant. Thank you, Emily. Let's start by going back to the beginning of your career and talk about a risk that most mathematics graduates might not like the statistics on. To paint the picture, we spoke to your former colleague and long-standing friend, Sarah Jones, who's now Head of Asset Management at Bright Bay Real Estate Partners, who had something to say on your early approach to risk as a newly qualified surveyor at DTZ. Back at the time, you know, she was just somebody that essentially worked hard and achieved. She then left and she went to another company, Hanson, I believe it was an, as an analyst. And I think at the time it was a tricky time in the market, but she, you know, she backed herself. And I really, I always say I love her confidence. I always used to say that, like, if I could just take a sprinkle of her confidence and dust it around all my friends, everyone would just be a little bit, little bit better. So she went to this, this new company um, at a very risky time when most people were kind of going, oh, God, I've got a job here that's more secure. I'll stay here rather than I'll, I'll leave um, and be sort of more vulnerable in, as a new person in a new company. But there just wasn't a shred of doubt in her. And that's probably one of the things I most admire. The GFC was arguably one of the most unstable time periods financially since the Great Depression. So why take the risk then? It's funny, right? I, I wouldn't have said that I'm a confident person, but I, I do hear a lot that I come across as being super calm and, and confident. I, I didn't really see it as a risk, Emily. I had the chance to work at DTZ with a load of 100 people, 100 graduates, 50 guys, 50 girls. It was like great intake of people yeah. for two years and watched lots of people doing different things, but saw what that meant when the market started to contract and there were people starting to worry about their job. And, and I'd been approached by Hammerson for a skill set that I had, which was financial analysis, and they really needed that skill set. So I actually didn't see it as a risk at all. I actually don't really think about things that much sometimes, or at least I didn't, I guess. just felt super lucky to be in London. I never dreamt about being anything more than a graduate at DTZ and then I got an opportunity. So I kind of just took it and, and sort of went with it. As I grew older, I obviously started to think a lot more about that. Mm -hmm. But my, you know, my background was very much that my family 
didn't advise me. I had no one who really thought about business and what steps you should take. So it was just, I quite liked the sound of the job. It, it suited my skill sets. And so I just took it. So it was the right opportunity, the right time with the right people. Yeah. Has your approach to risk changed yeah. over time? Talk yeah. to us about that. Yeah, definitely. Now, obviously, I think a lot more. Before, I had no responsibilities. I grew up with a single mum who it didn't really matter what I did. She was proud of me. So I didn't have to think about things. But then obviously, as you get older and you have children and you have more responsibilities, you then start to think, hang on a minute, I want to I want to provide. I want to think longer term. And then just going through what we went through at Hammerson, even though it was a, a difficult time, it was quite early on when I joined and I went through, you know, seeing lots of people being made redundant. I fortunately wasn't one of them, despite being the last person in. I I think I was relatively cheap as an analyst (laughs) and I was doing a lot of the analytical work that they Mm -hmm. needed. So I saw that and realised, hang on, there is real risk and that sort of changed my, my perspective on things. And I have a very different view to it now. I still kind of take things where I believe that if you work hard, and you work with the right people and you've got the right people around you, I jump into things because I'm I'm up for seeing w- what you can do if you work hard with the right people around you. I, mm. I kind of always believe that that's something you can do. But I, I'm very much more thoughtful and I'll think about, okay, why am I doing it? Three reasons. What are the real key risks? Where are the curveballs? And then I talk to my three or four sort of different people that I have around me that I that I rely on and then I make a decision as opposed to when I was 26 going well this job sounds great I'll just go and do that go with instinct yeah but tell me about the the earlier days how did you end up being drawn to maths maths was just something that I could do so I went to a state school in South Wales in Barry which people know from Kevin and Stacey there was no career guidance uh, we didn't even have a French teacher it was just something I could do. I was like the fact that I could tell if it was right or wrong. Mm. Do the exam and I had the time to just double check everything and it was quite nice to be able to do that. But equally, like no, none of my family had been to university so nobody advised me to go and do anything um, mm-hmm. specifically. I think if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't do it. But I have to say it somehow has gotten me roles and made people think I can do things even though you know it's just a degree and it was lots of years ago just being able to say that you've got a sort of analytical mind has been helpful but then going into real estate and I realized I could have had a much easier time and gone into the same job anyway Um, because I got to say maths the final year of my maths degree was one of the most challenging years of my life. It it got to a point that was so complex, so technical. And quick story that will tell you why maybe I've got the confidence I have, which is my final year of exams. And I had four exams in one week, four maths exams in one week, all nine o'clock in the morning. And they've since stopped that. My final exam, my mum left school at 14. And I was just crushed and I couldn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to get to the exam and do the test. And my mum stayed up with me all night. She had never done maths. She'd never done anything. And she just said to me, explain to me what you're going to do. What do you need to do? Just tell me really straightforward. We had coffee after coffee after coffee. And she just sat with me and we just went through practice question after practice question after practice question. And I ended up getting the highest mark on that exam than all my other exams because she just said, it doesn't matter don't worry about it, just do your best. And do you know what? When I'd explained it to her, she could actually do it. It made me realise that all these things that you think are super complex, if you just kind of take it back down to just explaining to your mum across the table, you can actually do it. Even if you can't get it perfect, you can actually pass. So, yeah. She sounds like an incredible woman. She really is, yeah. she's. I've had some brilliant female role models and she worked my whole life as well so again something that I've really benefited from and I feel for I do a lot of mentoring as you know I feel for the people that have the opposite to what I've had which is my mum constantly said to me you do what you want it's your life you be successful your your family life will be successful if you're happy as opposed to focusing on you must provide a family life and therefore if you are being selfish by working I think I I mentor some people that have that and that's a really really hard situation to be in my mum was always you know you go you be the best you can be and everything else will fit into place 
Talking about Oxford Properties, what has been the most rewarding thing for you about supporting the build out of Oxford's European arm over the past 12 years? The team. I just, I love watching the team grow, change, evolve. We started as, you know, just an office investor. I say just, it's not fair. An office investor at scale, really big deals, kind of front page news deals, but still an office investor. And I remember when Simon, Mary and Paul Brundish, when they hired me back in the day, they said, actually, we're going to deploy five billion and it's going to do that in the next five years. And we're going to be, you know, a real player in the industry. And I remember thinking, you know, they do even a part of that this is going to be exciting but what has been amazing is just watching how adaptable and flexible and creative the business has been and with that being able to really attract creative and and diverse people into the team and so the, the best most rewarding piece by a mile is watching this group of people just become a team of people that people want to join and people want to work with and then the deals that we've done have been everything from office or cross sector, whether it's M&A with, with M7 or whether it's credit deals or, you know, take privates in, in Asia. Like we've, we've sort of not had any restrictions on what we can or can't do, providing we've got the right people that know what, have got a plan and a strategy and they know where they're going. And so just bringing that team together, I think, has been amazing. Although it's easy to focus on risks people take to advance their careers, it's also important to remember that there's often someone on the other side of the table taking a risk on us too. We spoke to your mentor and former boss, Paul Brundage, now Deputy Chair of Investments at Omers, Senior Advisor at Oxford and Executive in Residence at R Labs, the Canadian real estate venture builder. Paul spoke to us about a time when he trusted you to take on a new role within the business. Let's have a listen. I think of examples for Joanne where she really had to, to take on new challenges. The first one that I can think of was when she went on maternity leave. And obviously there's a concern when you're a professional and you're also a mom, what that's going to look like when you when you come back. And she came back and we were making some changes in the business. And I asked her if she would consider making a complete pivot and take on the role of the finance director. And i am never forget the look on her face. It was kind of one of those, you want me to do what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, why? she goes, but I'm not an accountant. And I said, it's not about being an accountant. It's about being a leader. It's about understanding our business. And I think that one really sent her for a bit of a, a spin. And I know that she went home and spoke to her brother, who is a finance director, and he laughed on the phone for about 15 minutes, apparently. Yeah, um, it's actually even funnier than that, because he wanted to be a finance director, but he was working at KPMG, and he was like, I cannot believe you. <laughs> He's like, I've spent years doing accountancy. He's like, honestly, why are younger sisters such a pain? <laughs> so he was not, I mean, he, he, we're, we're super close, but he was like... Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you chummy. <laughs> so and so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bless him. He's uh, he's funny. I have to say, like, it's the, one of the things about Oxford that I love that I would never have seen that coming. Total curveball. Mm. I've always loved a new challenge. Like, as I explained earlier, I, the schooling education that I got was a little lacking. In, in a way, we weren't sort of taught we didn't have a business teacher or coach or anything like that. So actually the opportunity to learn the other side of the balance sheet without having to do all of the accountancy yeah. exams, the accountancy team was super, super strong. And having that sort of a new challenge, being able to do do something and, and really learn something new as I came back. And I'd had a break because obviously I, I was coming back from maternity leave. Not to say that I wasn't nervous, but it kind of goes back to that thing that Sarah Jones said, which was like, well... If I work hard enough, I'm I'm assuming I can get my head around this and I like the people that are in the team. And the business needed it. And, and I'd always found with Oxford ever since starting, as long as I focused mostly on what the business needed and put that first, everything else sort of seemed to come through with a bit of hard work. Mm -hmm. I seemed to kind of do okay. So I just carried on going with that. And then, you know, there was a, a separate piece which... 
it was my second maternity leave um, that I did this after. My first maternity leave, I went back into the investment role. And I have to say, the thought of having something a little bit more predictable for mm -hmm. my daytime, particularly when I was dealing with a six-month-old and a two-year-old at home, um, predictability around my workload and the timings of things versus an investment deal where I'd be traveling here, there and everywhere and at the drop of a hat, it was quite appealing at the time for me. But um, I do, as you know, Emily, I do a ton of mentoring on this and I hate kind of saying, you know, this is the right answer for everybody. Yeah. It just, I knew myself, I knew the pressures that I was under, I knew how I'd felt after the first maternity leave. And so I, for me, it was the right time to do something a little bit more predictable while also learning on the job. So I did, I did really enjoy it. It was the first time where I'd been a leader where I wasn't the subject matter expert. So I actually honed a, a completely different set of skills where I had to sort of really rely on the subject matter experts and then just lead. And I think that was one of the best experiences of, of my leadership journey, which was you you can't step in too much. You have to actually just oversee. And I kept saying to myself when I change jobs back to investment team, just remind yourself to do that more because what I saw was a huge amount of empowerment from people that could do what they were doing. And then they were far more likely to include you and inform you if you, they didn't feel like you were kind of doing too much for them. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't qualified to do it. So it was an early kind of um, learning yes. for me yep. to do that, which I love. The one thing I will say, though, is I I did miss the thrill of a deal. And so with one of the guys who I then brought over back over to the investment team who was in the finance team, we set up a credit business from the finance team. We put a little group of people together and said, well, OK, if we're lending or if we're borrowing, what about we could possibly lend as well? So we started that while I was FD. So I still couldn't ever get away from doing deals completely. But I think what's inspiring there is that you looked at your current circumstances and thought, these are the cards I'm, I'm dealt. I need to figure out a way to make it work. But that's an opportunity too. And it wasn't like maternity or having kids yeah. was career limiting. No. And do you know what? So many people, I remember so many people, mostly men, mostly in the US, saying to me, Paul's sidelining you. This is a, a, a sign to show that you're just going to be a woman that goes into the finance team and you're never going to get back into the investment team. I remember so many people saying that to me inside and outside the business. And I, I, just, I just did my own analysis and said, well, I actually, I felt that I didn't have enough experience having come from Hammerson where, you know, financing was done at the kind of entity levels and, yeah. and versus really getting rolling up my sleeves and learning a new skill but believing that actually I could get back to the investment team it wasn't a sort of one way to yeah believing in yourself trusting Paul yeah and knowing that if they were right I if you were sidelined then you would look elsewhere you yeah. know I think it is about that confidence it is and and Paul like Paul always said to me when I did when I did about a year because it was a secondment role it was somebody that was on secondment that came back and when she came back Paul said to me you know I was so upfront in saying but I'm coming back to the investment team like really early on like just being super clear as to don't put me in some other box because you think I can't cope because of kids it was brilliant to have this period yeah. and I've loved it but my heart's there so I think, again, I do with my mentoring, I say to people, just make sure you make it clear because left to their own devices, people will make their own assumptions of you. So you, you only have yourself to blame if you don't be very clear about what you want. Yeah, you have to take ownership of it and yeah. you have to be vocal about it because people... For sure. Yeah. So traditionally, risks taken in a career would centre around decisions made to move on from a job. But you've remained committed to Oxford growth and development. We spoke to Jim McCaffrey, Senior Managing Director at Eastill Secured and a fellow star athlete who shared his insight on where he felt you might have taken the greatest risk of all. I think it's probably the job that she, she hasn't taken, right? I mean, she could name literally any job top of the house across the uh, entire spectrum of real estate or infrastructure or what have you she is she's just that talented you would be familiar with just how attractive her resume would be her leadership skills all these things that combine 
to make an absolute unique, you know, number one draft choice for any institutional organization, private equity, any of these firms. I think a lot of times you see people who, who leave a job and in theory take a risk uh, to do something else. But with Joe, it's been just the opposite. So the risk is the jobs you haven't taken. <laughs> I've just always enjoyed what we have at Oxford. And I think it's changed so much from being this three of us to, and I was an analyst, like I was the bottom of the bottom, to then, you know, many sectors, many countries, leadership opportunities, different roles, mm -hmm. and working with different people as well, you know, whether that was Simon Marriott back in the day where we had so much fun to, then David Matheson, completely different character, but just someone brilliant to learn from, like, mm. and then obviously just the teams of people that I could bring in and nurture and they're like a family in, in many ways and then you know moving forward to the buying businesses like M7 and just those opportunities it's, it's really hard to say but you know maybe I've missed out on some things but I am I'm happy with my decisions. Well let's talk about Oxford's recent merger with M7 and we could think of no better person to introduce this than M7's founder and executive chairman Richard Croft a former podcast guest himself. Here's Richard sharing his thoughts on the risk that you both took. Yeah. I think I, I think it's fair to say that we took a risk on each other. I mean, my reputation for being malleable is, I know, not great. Um, uh, I think we have M7 and I have a reputation for being quite interesting and innovative. So she took a, a risk on us, on me, that she could control that and bring out the best in us within the context of Oxford. My track record of, of selling businesses to institutions can be best described as absolutely woeful. And M7 had been in talks with two or three entities over the course of the previous three years. And yet when I met her, I felt that she represented all the things that I want somebody to represent if they were going to earn M7. Yeah, we definitely, it happened quickly and we definitely took some risks. But again, you know, you know yourself, you know your team and your business, you know what you're trying to get to I needed wanted for the business we wanted exposure to a sector that was very difficult to get exposure to given the amount of um, demand for industrial real estate at the time and it was an opportunity and once you know you know why you're doing something you then look at the risks and yeah you know Richard my focus was always on the people and you look at that business and how they've all stayed together and what they've achieved. And then the values that that team had with the values that, that our team had all around, just, just treating people properly and mm. yes, big characters occasionally, but you know what, always wanting to do the right thing. I'd say the one thing that we very quickly learnt a lot about is, you know, a brilliant thing about working for a a business like Oxford is you get that North American angle, which, you know, all the private equity, you know, you need that North American angle. M7 have brought just a ton of laughter and yep. fun, which our team really needed. Middle of COVID, life's pretty dark and, and you know, we all remember what the third lockdown was like. But, you know, we exchanged contracts on New Year's Eve to do that deal and I can't tell you how much we just laughed even when we were dealing with like complex difficult pieces to a deal and we've done it since as well you know we have the hard conversations you've got to be in the trenches you've got to be able to have those hard conversations but at the end of the day take a step back and say like what are we actually doing here and and, and just laughing at each other and, and ourselves so there's been loads and loads of funny funny moments and um, yes it was a risk but I think if you just go to the basics and keep it simple, it's it's not as risky as you think. It's again, it is all about the simplicity of, of life and business, actually, if you strip it back. And, yeah. But it sounds like a Harvard case study waiting to be written. <laughs> Often we mark a deal's success by retention rates or transaction volume. But outside of this, there are other rewards that reflect the human impact a merger can have. Here's Richard Croft again, sharing what he has learned from working with you. I, I'm embarrassed to admit a lot. I, it's fair to say that I had a reputation for being a bit peculiar. Um, I probably still have a reputation for being a bit peculiar, but she had certainly encouraged me to believe that 
sometimes if there's a wall in my way, I don't have to run through it, which was my previous approach that I could, you know, maybe find a route around it without destroying everything in front of me. I'm certainly more considered. I used to do everything on gut instincts. Um, and in an entrepreneurial business, that's okay. In one that has to address its institutional ownership in a way that I didn't have to previously, it has meant that I've had to be more considered. And Joe has certainly uh, enabled me to become more considered than I was previously. Wow. Um, <laughs> I love the wall analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that wall. <laughs> Yeah, I, I use, again, I, I use the family thing with, with Richard because I say to him, yeah, we can always just blow everything up and just smash through. But there is a solution here that, that everything can work okay. He's one of a big family. My my nan had a big family. She was adopted. Um, so then my mum's one of five. We had a big family and we just grew up, as I'm sure you did, Emily, in, mm -hmm. in Ireland, in Wales with a big family. Mm -hmm. And so there are times when so many different people and you have to just find a solution. Um, you can't just smash the walls through. And so I just sort of use that with Richard a lot and just say, like, come on, we, there is another solution. I know your solution's quicker or your solution is more direct. And and sometimes, to be fair to him, I've learned so much from him mm. and their team as well. And that, that, that balance of that entrepreneurial, I need to get something done quickly versus this, you know, institutional you know, 12 years of being super considered very clearly why what are the key risks and you have to kind of um, document everything that sort of smash together of that I think we're both learning all the time but one of the key things is just you have to figure out a solution it's probably one of my areas of of, of things that I do wrong though I, I, I will always look for a solution I don't like conflict I don't want to blow things up because I just generally think intent of people is good and mm -hmm. therefore I'll find some way through most challenges so a peacemaker Yes. Have you ever, and if not, then let's organise it immediately, if not sooner, uh, an Oxford offsite in Barry, led by your <laughs> mum. <laughs> we'll bring Richard along. Definitely. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, Gavin and Stacey fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Having led the negotiation for M7's merger last year, you were awarded the PERE European Industry Figure of the Year, having previously been recognised as a PERE Woman of Influence. What has been the toughest challenge as a woman in real estate in what is still a relatively male-dominated industry? With all of that and the career that I've had, I can hardly claim that it's been that tough, right? I've been very lucky to have just been around great people whether mm. it was at DTZ Hammerson Oxford always and I I think I found it just as hard having come from you know not a wealthy family so you, you just whether it's being a woman or whether it's just being from a, a different background yeah the hardest thing for me was going to events where you just had to take that kind of oh I need to speak to a group of people and one they, they're all men and two, a lot would talk about public schools and a school system that just was completely alien to me. I'd say that's got a, like, a so, so much better than it mm. was. Um, and one of the things that really, really helped me was, I guess I'm quite outgoing anyway, I'm quite sociable, but what really helped me was was my knowledge of rugby. In Wales, rugby is a, a thing that everyone does and it's very much... Um, religion. Yeah, it's a religion, as in, is, it kind of is in Ireland, yeah, right? Yeah, um, we are disciples. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, from a very young age, rugby was something that everyone did and watched and went to. But my, um, in England, it was clearly something that, that you know, everyone talked about, um, but not, didn't seem to be many of the women were talking about it, which I found odd, because in Wales, it's like a very family thing. Yeah. Um, what it did is it gave me a talking point that I could always go, right, most people in this room are going to know something about rugby and I can talk that. And then having a Welsh view and being quite, you know, opinionated about things, I could generally get myself comfortable enough to start that, have a starting point of the conversation, which would join people as opposed to kind of sort of standing there going, I don't really have anything in common yeah. with people. And then, I, then I'd figure out how to make friends. But, you know, events were daunting mm. I remember um even like recently where Crofty said come to a dinner and it was um all very senior 
men. And I said to him, I can't go to that dinner. And he was like, what do you mean? But you, you kind of have that feeling deep down that is like, I, I just don't fit there. But when I went, I was completely fine. So, you know, some of it's in your own head, but some Imposters. of it is imposter syndrome, but some of it is just that it's hard walking into a room. What advice do you give to your mentees who are terrified about going into that room, not knowing anyone, having to network? For whom it's more difficult to work that room. How do you advise? Yeah, it, it's 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 a really important thing to do Emily you know how important it is and I would say try and find something whether it's rugby whether it's you know a passion that you have Mm. because then you're more engaged when you speak and then if you really can't get there bring someone with you go with a friend or something so that you're you're not on your own but quite often you know you can't yeah so you just have to and just say to yourself if you know it's only you stopping yourself. And if you don't, you really are, you know, relying just on your work or on what you do as opposed to the people that you know. It, it won't get you as far. It might do, but it will probably take you three or four times as long. And you'll probably miss a ton of, of opportunities and information snippets and just intel that you really, really need. So you have to push yourself. You have to do it, whether you like it or not. And, you know, it just it may mean if you absolutely can't do it and you're a complete introvert and, and you just can't make yourself do it, then, you know, part of the role of being a, a leader in real estate, it might not be the right job for you because you ha- it's just something I think you have to do. And then also, like like I said, with the M7 stuff, learning to laugh at yourself a little yeah. bit. I think you, you kind of get yourself into this zone of, oh, what if I say the wrong thing on a panel? Or what if I what if I say something that's not true or that, that yep. turns out to be wrong? Just saying, well, you know, I just, I did my best. And you can just laugh at yourself. Or if you do say something stupid, just laugh. Yeah. It's okay. It's not life or death. Yeah. Have there ever been times when you wanted to walk away from this industry yeah yeah there have I think particularly with two children the mum guilt or the parent guilt I'll call it whether you're a mum or a dad it does take a lot of your life Mm -hmm. and you know my little girl who I adore has no qualms in saying to me mummy why do you work so hard you know and you, you you take that as if they're an adult and you you kind of go Maybe I am doing the wrong thing. Um, I go back to my mum, though, and she just says, she's a child. She just wants her mummy. She doesn't really think about the whole thing. So don't base what, your life based on a comment from a, from a, a little one. Obviously, um, when times are tough, it is hard to, to motivate yourself to kind of keep getting up, keep going, and, and keep kind of being away from family. But... I'm lucky enough that I love what I do. I love the people that I work with and I just bring my family into it Mm. as opposed to keeping it separate. During our chat with your friend, Sarah Jones, she shared a story with us that speaks directly to this challenge, the challenge of being a mother and a career woman. Yeah. Let's listen to Sarah. There was a time when she just had her eldest, uh, Tom, and I'd been off work sick and I was I was just I was not in a good place for a good couple of weeks. And there was no there was no holding her back, even with a newborn. She came around to check on me, make sure I was okay, so she was on that leave at the time. And um she had decided she was going to drop Tom at nursery and she was going to catch a, a taxi from my house to the airport and she was gonna to fly to Canada and I know she really did not want to go. You know, Tom was tiny, but she she got to mind. She checked I was okay, and then we walked Tom to the nursery. And as we walked back, she was very quiet. And I said, "Are you okay?" And she said, "I feel like I'm walking to my death." She thought, "How can I leave my child?" And I said, "Tom's going to be absolutely fine. He's going to have a great time with his dad." They're going to have a great time bonding. You're going to have probably 48 hours, 72 hours of catching up and just reminding yourself who you are. You're going to have a great time and you're going to come back to a happy, healthy, contented baby. And she got in that car and she came back and she said, yeah, 
you were right. I had a great time. I came back and my family were great. Tom was really happy to see me. Gary was really happy to see me. And I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. There's been many of those times when you have to travel and you're away for big chunks of time. It can be hard, but people like Sarah and people like my mum and, and, and Gary's brilliant. You know, he will always just, you know, the, the advent of FaceTime and being able to see them. I have to say it gets easier. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are now, you know, after school, they've got either gymnastics or rugby or football or netball or something. You know, by the time they get home, you get 20 minutes with them if you're lucky. And most of the time they're kind of like, all right, mum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a 20 minute FaceTime, actually, you get more engaged than you do if you're there for an hour at home. There's no perfect way of doing it. Mm. There's compromise no matter what you do. But I, I have to just say my kids are super happy, super balanced. I really enjoy what I do. And, but I have to put boundaries with work. Um, I learned that after having children, but I would say it's for people with or without children. Boundaries at work are massively important. And working somewhere where you have that confidence to say what your boundaries are and it be okay. And again, a lot of the time with the mentoring I do, a lot of the time we get in our own heads. And there's a girl I was mentoring recently who had started a new job and you know, she was working every day in the office and I saw her for a quick drink and she just started crying and, and she said, well, you know, I'm missing my baby. And I said, well, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm working and I don't get home in time so my baby's in bed. And why are you doing that? And she said, well, you know, that's what that's what's expected of me. And I'm like, by who? And then like two two days later, she phoned me. She was like, okay, my boss told me to be at home two days a week. I can't believe I didn't know that. So a lot of the time it is just in our own heads. I've had a fair amount of coaching myself now. Um, Just that, you know, if you're talking to people, just making sure they know if you're a guy or a girl, whatever, kids, no kids, this is what keeps me sane. Yeah. I have to stick to this. And if that doesn't work for you, that's okay. But I can't take on this assignment or I can't do this or I can't do that. Like those boundaries are, are really important and often parenthood means that you have to put them in place but even if you don't it's really important to do yeah and also you don't give I find as well you know you give other people a chance to shine if you are sharing like we have a team of teams and so it's not about who's the most senior person it's who's the right person to lead a project and they lead it and does it work for them yes great are they excited yes are they passionate yes then they lead that project and whether it's I'm more senior, I can be a different part of that team. And so the example that we had recently, one of the female footballers, I think it was Leah Williamson, came and gave us a presentation about how she was captaining the team, but actually she wasn't the best penalty taker. And so for ages she was taking penalties and and missing. And then she realised that it wasn't just because she was the captain didn't mean she had to take the penalties. So she gave that to somebody else in her team who never missed a penalty because just had that ability to switch off and not take the pressure and their team kept started winning and winning and winning and then the whole thing was better so it's just putting people in the right places for the right thing and your boundaries sometimes help other people shine and, yes and no, knowing that and accepting other people's boundaries as well you can have different people do things Although less conventional, your husband, Gary McNamara, investment director at the Ardent Companies and director at Property Investment Futures, also shared the benefits of motherhood when practising deal negotiation <laughs> with your seven-year-old daughter, Hannah. Hannah at seven will sort of try and negotiate something and then Joe will be, you know, maybe firm enough to say no and say, but you can do this. And uh, Hannah will be like, bingo, that's what I wanted all along. You know, so actually sort of, you know, forward thinking that she's probably taken something from her mum early doors, I think, on that, actually. Clearly, the art of negotiation has passed from mother <laughs> to daughter. <laughs> oh, she's she's better than me. Oh, my God. <laughs> she is the best negotiator by a country mile that I've come across. But I think, obviously, that, that comes down to... I think Hannah and my daughter could set up yeah. a business. Yeah. I, think. I, I think we should set them up to meet. <laughs> <Next generation. laughs> 
Paul Brundage also spoke to us about your shared passion for championing diversity in the workplace. Here's Paul sharing your approach when building out a real estate team. It was something that was very important to her, but it was also something that she wanted to ensure was not not a token, if I can use that term. And she and I talked a lot about that. And because we had a blank slate on who we could hire, I don't ever remember consciously saying we're going to hire you know, one woman, one man, one woman, one man, blue people, green people, whatever. We never did it that way. We just hired the best people. But because I had watched and learned from Joanne about um, how she worked and her relationships, we were able to put together a team that kind of woke up one day and said, well, we're actually pretty diverse. And so I learned that that was possible from Joanne. And um, that's something that I am incredibly grateful for. How do you approach hiring the best talent whilst also endorsing equal opportunities? Um, I think I just... We did have a blank slate. Paul's right. That's a real kind of benefit. Mm. But what we did... Uh, again, Paul's right. We didn't really think it through. We didn't say, "Oh, well, this one needs to be this. This needs to be that." We we were just looking for the the best talent. So I can honestly say that that is what we did. But I think because we were looking at all different sectors, we had the North American piece. We had we were looking in Europe. We were looking at very different kind of ways of investing that we couldn't have everybody the same. So we were looking for people that were either coming across from North America that had that angle or that had an angle that was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the way that we've done it is I've always tried really, really hard wherever possible to kind of hire from the bottom up and allow the team to decide themselves because you then get the team's buy-in. But mostly making sure that people know the way that we work is by having people to challenge um people that you like but that people that will challenge you so we 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 really fundamentally believe that having a diverse view around something will get us to a better outcome and therefore when we look at hiring somebody now that we actually have a team we're saying well what else can they offer because if they're just the same it's not really going to add too much in real estate it's kind of working as well, I think. And there's just so many different sort of aspects and sectors that you need that diversity. Yeah. I'm trying to think, what do we do? We don't really think about it. I, mm. like, I don't. We do ask our recruiters like you guys to bring us diverse talent. We do very much think about, does the wording in this job description attract to certain types of people? We do a lot with places like Pathways to Property yes. and 10,000 Black Interns. And we, we do internships to make sure that we give people opportunities to learn and to get work experience with us. But really, you know, the, the reality is now, you know, we have one job and we have 400 people apply for it. And it's kind of filtering that that's the hard bit. And, and that's where I rely on the team to just filter that and say, make sure you've got a kind of diversity in your mind but we're already quite a diverse team so quite often it's the last thing that needs to be considered once we've got a a short list of people that are capable. Your family and career aren't the only things you've been known to put your heart and soul into. Sarah Jones also made sure to clarify that the two of you were players and not spectators (laughs) when it came to sport. We couldn't think of a better way to introduce your sporting mindset than through the words of Eastfield's Jim McCaffrey. I I would say that don't let the size fool you. Um, She, as I found out indirectly, she was a a champion netball player. I was a basketball player. So I made the uh, mistake once of saying, well, you know, were you any good? And she looked at me and she said, well, were you any good? And I said, "Uh, that's okay. She said, why don't we go play some one-on-one down at the park? So uh, I would say that she definitely packs a punch. I haven't taken her up on that yet. But she's she definitely she doesn't lack confidence, courage, or conviction uh, when it comes time to follow through. Yeah, yeah. Um, netball has been 
my mum played. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a it's a in the family, but it's been one of those things that it's just where I've gotten my friends. Like come to London, didn't know anyone really at all. Joined a, a business with a lot of men in the team and then joined a netball team and there were fifty women already there and everyone was, you know, up for training hard and working hard and, and playing and winning which is something that comes into sport to work a lot but it's a team sport you can't win in netball I don't know if you've ever played netball from from Dublin but it's it's one that McCaffrey definitely doesn't understand (laughs) (laughs) Um, because you you can't move with the ball Um, so you have to pass to the seven players and Paul Brundage used a lot of analogies with rugby and a lot of women felt a little bit alienated with the sport analogies but I I, I felt always included because for me sport was something where you take the knocks you have to get back up you get selected you don't get selected I was work playing when I was under 18s I was playing and I, I just got cut from the squad because everybody under five foot eight just got cut there were no reasons there were no nothing there was nothing and it was just it was actually Raywin Henry um, who Graham Henry was the Wales rugby coach she was the netball coach his wife and she just cut and everybody was it was everyone had it was uproar in in the sort of netball world and within two years Wales had gone from sort of 50th to ninth in the world because it's a game that it was just a a benefit to being tall and it's kind of a really good lesson in life like sometimes it's just nothing you can do McCaffrey I know for a basketball player is small and you have to be good when you're small but also you get benefits from being small you can kind of creep under and mm-hmm. and do things differently yeah. so Sarah I call SJ so SJ and I played netball my the entire time when I was in London and we just it gave us a reason to get up on a Saturday. We'd just jump in the car, I'd explore different parts of the UK and we'd drive up together. And then we'd play, we'd train. Sometimes we'd kind of get to each other and go, yeah, pass wasn't great, that wasn't that. Then at the end of the day, you're, like, you're just best friends again. And I love pushing myself to, to being good at something, but also, you know, just being with a group of people that you, you want to be around and... It, it's a shame I've I've not, you know, it's the one thing I've had to give up. Ah, I wanted to ask. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah it is It is the one thing with children and working that I had to, I couldn't commit because yeah. it, it was training every week and then weekends away, which when you're working full time, it's just not possible. Or at least for me, it wasn't. But what I do is I'm sort of super sub for them. <laughs> so every couple of months, they're, yep. they're short a few players and I'm like... Hi. I'm a short player. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need anyone? Um, and so I've done a few games like that and the kids have come up to watch and it, it's just brilliant. I love it. Well, I think you need to take Mac up on that uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> offer. I think maybe we, there's a charity match in there somewhere. I think so. <laughs> Joking aside, we've certainly talked to previous guests about the correlation between sport, business and particularly team sport. It's what I love about team sport. And you know, the first thing I did when I took the role that Paul had, I could feel a little bit of tension in the group. And I just sort of grabbed them all together and made them understand each other. And so went through, okay, let's be honest, what are each of our strengths? Because on a netball court, you each have your strength. I can't defend against a six foot tall goal shooter, but I have strengths. And so I know what they are and I clearly call them out. Um, and so I sort of got the senior group together and I said, right, what are your strengths? Confidently tell each other what our strengths are. And then where are the, how can we fit people together? And then realize that you could win on your own to a point, but we're actually, if we all pull ourselves together, we're actually going to win way, way more often than if we try and do it on our own. And this is a team sport because no one person can lead a business of, of that size. It's a team thing. And so let's be together and then it's whether it's a sports team or a family like we support each other Mm. and we help each other along so I am competitive because I hate I hate losing Um, but if if we lose for a reason that I can justify yeah then I'm okay with it and I I will kind of go back and and say right what are the things we did wrong Mm -hmm. and and look at that and say why did we why did we do it did we do it because of the right reasons or did we do it without thinking and so if we did it and it was it it just went wrong because it went wrong on the day yeah as opposed to 
you know, we just didn't think about it and therefore it went wrong. So we often go back and look at, okay, what happened with this deal? You know, thematically, things were going in the right direction, but we missed this, this and this. Okay, make sure we just learn from that again. And so creating that environment of trust. Yeah, and knowing you're there because you deserve to be there. Yeah. One of the most impactful people in my career was a lady from Canada. My coach happened to be a Canadian lady. And she she just kept saying to me, you deserve to be there, you deserve to be there, you deserve to be there. And it's just that once you feel like you deserve to be somewhere and that you're confident that, okay, I've got something to offer, you then can say, okay, well, these are the things I'm not that great at, so who is good at it? Yes. Because I need somebody to, to help me here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try and make sure everybody feels that way in the team. Yeah. I think teamwork will be needed now more than ever as we make our way into a more challenging market 2023 recessions can be seen as part of the market cycle but when times are good we often forget the impact that they have too sarah jones shared some interesting insight on your differing opinions here i was you know we were talking about our industry and you know how many redundancies there are during recessions and things like that and I guess my attitude has always been, having having joined the the industry at the end of 2007, I tried to be very pragmatic about it and just say, yep, do you know what, though? I just remember all the redundancies that happened back then. Everyone was okay. We all ended up where we were meant to be. It generally helped people. And she didn't, she didn't necessarily agree. She said, yeah, but, you know, I also saw people being badly affected with their confidence sort of a number of years afterwards and and she 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 has that emotion and that kind of sensitivity to other people's feelings um that that actually I think makes her a stronger leader but I suspect that makes it much harder to make really tough decisions when they they inevitably need to be made yeah she's nailed it (laughs) yeah I feel I feel what other people feel generally but I I will make those tough decisions if they're needed. I probably take a little longer than, than others might. But I I can be very kind of honest about, okay, it's just not working and I'll find a way through to, to figure out, you know, we have to do something different. But yeah, look, it's being at Hammerson, watching a lot of people losing their jobs, then, you know, kind of, my husband lost his job in 2008 like you you experience it and these things and so you know everybody has done done well and and I I guess I feel that a lot of people there's a lot of really really bright people that have been affected and so I will always be careful about how people are treated and just make sure that kind of going back to my nan that people are treated the way you would expect to be treated yourself not mm-hmm. equally not but but fairly and and appropriately um and you know try and help people if if they're not in the right role try and yep. help them elsewhere so yeah i do i do take that on it is something that is that is definitely um i, I find it harder to get rid of you know move people on if unless i can really rationalize it then i'll make that hard decision but again people will say you know I remember my my PA saying to me, um, "You're really really nice until you get to that point." And like once I've made the decision, it's like bang, I've got to make it. Yeah, it's got to go. It's got to be that decision for the team. We got to go in that direction, and then, you know, then I will make sure that person, as much as I can, has the best experience. It's a miserable day in London today, and so I was going to say we'd be sorry to say we're marooning you on a desert island um, for these chilly months. I think you'd be grateful for some sunshine, a bit of quiet, chance to read some books. So you're going away for a couple of months. Who's the first industry contact you'd call for advice when you return to catch you up on where things have been? And (laughs) Well, I'm I'm assuming I've already spoken to my husband. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, well, it was funny when Sarah Jones said... uh, you know, Tom will be happy to see you and Gary will be happy to see you. I'm like, of course he will, because he'll have been doing ch- solo <laughs> childcare. <laughs> yeah. He'll yeah. be like, she's I mean, back. If the kids are even alive, <laughs> if I left him for that long, yeah. not sure he'd ever speak to me yeah. again. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so assuming he's taken your call. Assuming he's done it. Um, 
it would be the two people you have on here. So it'd be Crofty and, and McCaffrey. I mean, the guys know, Richard, I think, knows everything in in relation to the European market and McCaffrey gives you that global view. But I, I'll have a lot of fun with them as well. So it's talent, talented people that you trust, but also that you can have a bit of a laugh with. So. What asset classes would you most likely to hedge your bets on whilst you're on the island? In other words, what's going to stay slow and steady over the next uh, couple of months? Over the next couple of months, I think um, it's a tough one. I think if you go with just general demand for things, notwithstanding the fact that we're likely entering a recession and who knows where pricing goes on on many asset classes, um, but demand, I just, I've never seen so much demand and maybe it is after COVID, but just for experiences and hotels and being with people, doing things that people like to do. So, you know, going on holidays, that kind of thing, you'd have to just say at the moment, you'd probably put your money into that mm. right now just to hedge your bets. Now, you know, you'd never bet against residential and other asset classes as well. But right now, I'd, I'd go hotels. And what would you miss most about being away? My children. Hugs from my kids. Um, 100%. Just that. And my daughter woke me up at 3am this morning, which is lovely. Um, She'd had a nightmare. But that hug that you get from them, it's it's just nothing quite like it. And just they laugh. and, And I love listening. Christmas Day woke up and they'd built themselves a den and they were talking about how they'd heard Father Christmas and all these things that just those little listening moments that you get to hear from them and they've, they've, they're both close which is my single greatest achievement which I've had nothing to do <laughs> with but they actually like each yeah. other which is amazing so that I, I, I just I actually couldn't be away on an island without them mm. but for a few days it sounds <laughs> sounds delightful and what would I miss then other than that I mean I'm assuming I'd had books to read because if if I didn't I'd go a bit mental I, I need that you'll have a never-ending supply okay books. so if I've got that then I haven't missed that other than that you know my family generally best books what books would you be bringing with you oh I'm reading at the moment something called lessons in chemistry have mm. you read that no uh quite an interesting one about just Generally, an interesting stat from from that is how in the 1950s, there was a fear that women coming into the workforce would mean that men would be without jobs. And um, obviously, fast forward, and that hasn't happened. And it's just this, it's just super interesting about, I debate quite a lot with, with Crofty around the impact of automation and it is scary, but we do seem to always find a way of, of creating more jobs and having sort of something to, to find for our for the human race to do. Now, you know, you can take it to extremes and it does get quite scary when you go that. But look, I like I like reading about um, equal parts sort of, you know, from one hand, Pride and Prejudice and favourite books on that hand to, to escapism to then like really books around, you know, history and what how we make strides in in the future particularly around you know what what are the future challenges so it looks like we're at full time on our interview today but before we go we couldn't finish without sharing some very important feedback from a current employee of yours here's Richard Croft (laughs) once more I don't think of him as an employee for what it's worth. <laughs> I think he described himself <laughs> as your employee. Let's have a listen. If she's got some kryptonite, she's a bit irritatingly good at stuff. And there are days where I do think, can you just not be right? Just just for once. Because I don't think I've won an argument with her in the two years that I've worked with her. You know, as you know, I'm not afraid to voice an opinion. I literally don't think I've won a single argument with her. There are there, there are days where I chant to myself and think, oh, for God's sake, just be wrong, just for a bit. It would make us all feel better. <laughs> what a way to end. <laughs> there you, I think that's your deed for the day, is to just find Crafty and be wrong on something. Um, he, <laughs> I'm always wrong. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> he also mentioned that you usually point proven you usually refuse to accept praise so we might have to sneak in a bit of extra time for this one too God. she is a very funny very engaging very kind and very very able human being 
I can't say, well, I can't say often enough how much I hope she succeeds and becomes really one of the most dominant figures in our industry because our industry needs her. I think she's a remarkable leader and I've thoroughly enjoyed the two years that I've had working with her. I definitely hope that her career of the next sort of 10, 20 years takes it to where it should be, which is right to the top. Wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I think it's a lovely way to finish off. Joe McNamara, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Boho Partners podcast today. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, Emily. It's been an absolute pleasure. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Boho Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Boho Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks. <laughs>